talk about fetal monitoring patterns. There are seven of them that you should know. Don't panic because they're actually easy to remember. I'm going to go through here and tell you which ones are okay and which ones are bad and what to do for them. Alright, so that's the way we're going to go. The first one is a low fetal heart rate. That means under 110. This is bad. When you see it, you do LION. L-I-O-N. Left side, I-V-O-2, notify. And if pit were running, what would you have done? Stop the pit. High fetal heart rate. That's a fetal heart rate over 160. This is no big deal. You would document it and take mom's temperature because it's probably mom has a fever. That's based, but there's nothing wrong with who? The baby. Baby's just fine. You don't have to do anything specific. If you did anything, you'd take mom's temperature. That's basically all you do. It's no big deal. It's not a high priority. Low baseline variability. This is bad. This is when the fetal heart rate stays the same and does not change. Whether high or low or in the middle, it just stays the same. It doesn't change. That's bad. That's bad. And what you do is lion. L-I-O-N. Left side, I-V-O-2, notify. High baseline variability. What that means is baby's heart rate is always changing. That's good. Documented. Now, it's kind of interesting. Once a person is born, if their vital signs stay the same over time, what do we call them? Stable, and they are in good shape or bad shape. Good. But when you're, before you're born, if your vital signs stay the same over time... It's low baseline variability and it's bad. You want to see... So what we want to see before you're born, we don't want to see after you're born. And what we want to see after you're born, we don't want to see before you're born. So we want to see vital signs all over the map when the baby's in utero. That's called high baseline variability. That's good. We don't like to see stable vital signs, which is low baseline variability. Late decelerations. Decelerate means to slow down and late means near the end of a contraction. So the heart rate slows down near the end or after a contraction. This is bad. So what you do is lion. L-I-O-N. 
left side, IV, O2, notify. Early decelerations. What would this mean? Early decelerations. Baby's heart what? Slows. Why did you say slows? Decelerate. When? Before a contraction or at the beginning of a contraction. And this is fine. This is normal. It's no big deal. So you just document it. Which brings up the last tracing, variable decelerations. This is very bad. Think of variable, very, 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 variable, very bad, variable, very bad. So when you see variable, think, oop, very bad. How very bad? Well, this is prolapse cord. This is what happens when you prolapse a cord. So what do you do for this? Push, position. So of the seven abnormal fetal heart tracings, of the seven abnormal fetal heart tracings, which one is the most unique? Variable. And it's very bad. So it's the only one which is treated by push, position, because it's prolapse. Now, if we look at the remaining six, how many are good and how many are bad? Three are good, three are bad. What do you notice about all the ones which are bad? They begin with the letter L, which is the first letter in lion. So if you get a fetal heart tracing that begins with the letter L, what do you do for it? Lion. And so is it good or bad? Bad. So if it doesn't start with an L, it's okay, unless it's variable, in which case it's very bad. So if you want to know your fetal heart tracings, just look at the first letter. Starts with L, it's bad, it needs line. If it doesn't start with L, it's okay, but if it's variable, it's very bad. It needs the prolapse routine, the push position. So do you feel a little bit better about those? Um, There's one other thing I want to show you that tells you what they are. You know, what are they? What do they mean? And I'll see. Uh, you probably have heard of it, but for some of you that haven't heard of it, this might work. Um, I've told you what, they, what the implications of them are, but um, what are they? Write the word veal. You know, like, like young beef, beef, veal. So write veal vertically down. And then write chop, like lamb chops, pork chops, veal chop. Do you see what I'm saying? So veal chop. Now what this is, is this is the first letter of the tracing, and this is the first letter of what it means. So variable would be what? V would be variable. That is cord compression. Do you see that? Variable is cord compression. What would this stand for, the E? <coughs> Early, decel, and that's what it is, what it's caused by starts with an H, so would that, what would that be? Head compression. 
What would A be? Well, we didn't talk about it, but it's, it's high fetal heart rate acceleration, which is high fetal heart rate, correct? And that's okay. Okay, meaning it's fine. Remember we said that high fetal heart rate was okay? <clears throat> what would L stand for? Late D cell. And what would that stand for? Starts with a P. Placental insufficiency. Placental insufficiency. So veal chop. Variable cord. Early head. Accelerate. Okay. Late placental. Veal chop. Yes. When you need it. Oh, okay. Not at the beginning. Okay. They'll give you a little whiteboard kind of thing, and you'll use that for your scratch pad. When you fill it up, you raise your hand. They bring you another one. Okay. You don't erase. They don't like you erasing. They'll freak out if you're erasing. So I would I would erase just for that purpose. <laughs> In fact, what I would do is I'd go like this. But I would be doing absolutely nothing. You know, I wouldn't really be erasing. I'd just be going like this to freak them out. Okay. They can make me take this test. They can make me sit there, but they can't make me behave. So that's... I always think a little civil disobedience goes a long way. You know, you're, are you in control of this test? No, you have to go take this test. You have to sit where they tell you to sit. They have to take the questions you have to take. They, you have to do it. So do something, you know, civilly disobedient, you know, wear a, wear a you know, pair of clown ears. I don't know. Don't wear underwear. I don't know. Um, do something that's, you know, where you're, you can sit there and you can say, I'm in control, you know, to give you a little, little edge. Okay. Ace of spades. An ace of spades means what answer always wins in a tie. There are certain answers which... They're always winners. They just, they just win all the time. And in OB, there is one answer that always wins. And if you've ever worked OB, you'll know what it is. And that is, check what? Fetal heart rate. You cannot work OB if you don't know that. No matter what happens in OB, no matter what happens in OB, what is the one question that surfaces all the time? What's the fetal heart rate? She's doing this and doing that. Well, what's the fetal heart rate? Well, this is doing that. Well, what's the fetal heart rate? So you'll always check a fetal heart rate. All right, that's the first stage of labor and delivery labor. Let's talk about the second stage of labor and delivery, delivery of the baby. <clears throat> this is all about order. What do you do in what order? Well, first you deliver the head. And you say, well, what if it's breach? Come on, don't go breach unless they say it's breach. Okay, go with the common. So it's a cephalic, so deliver the head. Number two, suction the mouth, then the nose. It always goes alphabetical. You suction the mouth first, then you suction the nose. Then number three, check for a nuchal, nuchal, N-U-C-H-A-L, cord. What does nuchal mean? Around the neck. Nuchal means neck. So check for a nuchal cord. Then number four, deliver the shoulders and the body. In that order. So first out comes the head, then you suction the mouth, 
then you suction the nose, then you check for a cord around the neck, and then you deliver the rest of the baby. Right? That's the ideal. Number five, the baby must have an ID band on before it leaves the delivery area. A baby must have an ID band on before it leaves the delivery area. Okay, third stage of labor and delivery. Delivery. What's this about? Placenta. Two things you need to know here. Number one, make sure it's all there. Number two, check for a three-vessel cord. Make sure the cord has three vessels, three blood vessels. How many of each? Two arteries, one vein. Think of the woman's name, Ava. Ava. How do you spell Ava? A V A. How many A's are there? Two. That's two arteries. How many V's? One. That's one vein. So the woman's name, Ava. Two arteries, one vein. Okay, that's all you really need to know about the placenta. Fourth stage of labor and delivery called recovery, correct? Recovery. That's what goes in that blank. Recovery. It's the first two hours after delivery of the placenta, right? Now, there are four things you do four times an hour in the fourth stage. So you're going to write four three times there. There are four things you do four times an hour in the fourth stage. So what are the four things you do every 15 minutes, which means four times an hour, in the fourth stage? Well, the first thing you do is vital signs. Vital signs. And you're assessing for signs and symptoms of shock, which is pressures go down, rates go up, you get pale, cold, and clammy. Pressures go down, rates go up, and you look pale, cold, and clammy. Those are the signs of shock. Anything that's called a pressure goes down. Anything that's called a rate goes up. And that. Number two, fundus. Check the fundus. If it's boggy, you massage it. If it's displaced, you catheterize. Number three, the pads, the perineal pads. Check the perineal pads. Look to see how much she's bleeding. If she is bleeding excessively, she will saturate a pad in 15 minutes or less. So how often are you checking her? Every 15. And when you check her, you put on a new pad. You go back, it's 98% saturated. Is she in trouble or not? 98% saturated. Is she in trouble or not? How many say she's in trouble? How many say she's not? She's not in trouble. <coughs> because it has to be saturated. 100%. And 98 is not 100%. And, and when you learn these rules, you have to live and die by them. You can't start fudging. Do you know what I mean? You can't say, well, that's close to that. Then pretty soon you start 
you know, losing your anchors. So 100% means 100%. If it's not 100%, it's okay. But if you want, if you give, put a new pad on her, check her in 15 minutes, and it's, uh, it's fully saturated. Saturated. If they say saturated, what does that mean? 100% she's in trouble. But if they say 98% saturated, I'd say she's okay. Close, but she's okay. Number four, roll her over. Roll her over. In other words, check for bleeding underneath of her. A lot of people will check the pads but won't roll her over. And that's not safe. Because could you saturate half a pad and bleed out underneath? So you gotta, you got to do both. So what do you do four times an hour in the fourth stage? Vitals, fundus, pads, and roll. Vitals, fundus, pads, and roll. You do those every 15 minutes in that stage. That phase. Stage. Okay, turn the page and let's do postpartum. This is talking about postpartum assessment. What do you assess? And usually you're assessing this every four to eight hours. It's either four hours or eight hours. It just depends on whether she's stable or not. And what you're assessing is bubble head. Now, there's a whole bunch of stuff here, but I only want you to highlight and know three of them. And I'll tell you which three. The first B stands for breasts. This is not a real important one. The U stands for uterine fundus. And this is the one, the first one you must highlight. This is an important one. Here again, you want it to be firm. If it's boggy, you massage. You want it to be midline. If it's not, you cap them. Just like in the recovery. But there's something new that they will ask here in postpartum, and that is the height of the fundus related to the belly button. Where do you find it? Because what they'll do is they'll tell you how many postpartal days it is and you got to locate where fundus should be. It's really simple. All you do is fundal height equals day postpartum. Fundal height equals day postpartum. <clears throat> now what do I mean by that? Is this. If a woman, here's her abdomen, here's her navel, this is minus one, minus two, minus three, minus four, minus five, minus six, and it's the fourth postpartal day, and they want you to point and click. Okay, here's a hot spot here, hot spot here, hot spot here, one here, one here, one here, one here, one here, and one here. You know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I. Alright? And she's fourth postpartal day. Which hotspot would you click on? G. That's how many below? Four. Four below on the fourth day. 
Now be careful because F will be there too. Why would you not click on F? It's displaced. You want it midline. So they will have hot spots so that you'll get the right level. But if you're not precise, you'll be off to the side. And you don't want to be off to the side. You want to be in the middle. <clears throat> okay, the next two Bs are bladder and bowel. They're not a big deal. Bladder and bowel. The L is lochia. L-O-C-H-I-A. This one is the second one you highlight. This is the second important one. They are rubra, serosa, and alba. Rubra, serosa, and alba. Rubra is R-U-B-R-A. Serosa is S-E-R-O-S-A. And alba is A-L-B-A. Now it occurs in that order. First the lo by the way, the lochia is the vaginal drainage. Rubra is first, then serosa is second, and alba comes last. Now they want to know what color they are. Okay, if you rub you see rubra has the word rub in it. If you rub and rub and rub something, what color will it turn? Red. So rubra is red. Serosa has the root rosa for rosy. If your cheeks are rosy, what color are they? Pink. So rosa is pink. And alba, if you are an albino, what color are you? White. So alba, albino, white. So rub red, rosy pink, albino white. Rubra, serosa, alba. Now the amount... Four to six inches on a pad an hour is, is okay. Excessive is saturated pad in 15 minutes or less. It's the same idea. The E stands for episiotomy. Episiotomy. No big deal. It's an incision. The H stands for hemoglobin and hematocrit. No big deal there. They're not going to focus on that. The E stands for extremity check, checking the extremities. This is the third important one you must highlight. And right now, on this one, they're looking for thrombophlebitis. So they want to know what's the best way for you to, to determine if a person has thrombophlebitis or not. What's the best way? Hmm? Exactly. Bilateral calf circumference measurement. Measuring their calves. How many have heard of Homan's sign? That's not going to be the best answer. Now, it's not a horrible answer, but it's not the best one. Because you can have a positive Homan's sign and have equal calves and not have thrombophlebitis. And you can have thrombophlebitis and not have a positive Homan's sign. So, it's not as reliable or valid. Some places don't even want you to do it. A stands for affect. It means you're emotional. Don't worry about Bowlby stages. You know, latching on, letting go, taking in, throwing up. I don't really know what they are. You know, have you ever heard of those? Yeah. Don't worry about all that. That's, that's 
nuts. And then D, discomforts. And that's just, that's, there's really no big deal there either. So the three big things you're going to be tested on in postpartum are what? The fundus, the lochia, and about thrombophlebitis. Anybody ever work postpartum? <laughs> that's the three big things you talk about in report. You know, where's the fundus? How's the lochia? And how are her legs? She got thrombophlebitis. Okay, turn the page. Let's talk about variations in the newborn. Yes. No, the the number of days when things go all varies. Boris likes to test what does not vary. The the lengths vary, but the order never varies, and what they are never varies. So it's just like with Chadwick's, Goodell's, and Hegar's. They're not going to say what week or what month. They're just going to say what order and what is it. Okay, um, variations in the newborn. All of these things are normal. So I just wanted you to know that. I'm not going to read it to you. You don't have to have it read to you. But all of these things are normal. Even though they sound, some of them sound bad. Look at number four. Erythema toxicum neonatorum. Sounds horrible, doesn't it? But it's just a rash. It's no big deal. The only thing specifically I would need, I would want you to know from this page other than the fact that all these are normal, is the difference between number six and number seven. Because they always test about the differences between six and seven. Caput succedanum and cephalohematoma. What do they always want to know? One's bleeding. What's that? One's bleeding. One's bleeding, and that would be hema. And then also, what else? Which one crosses sutures? Which one does not? Which one's symmetrical? Which one's not? The easiest way I know that know to memorize that is look at their initials. What are the initials of Caput Succedanum? C S. What could C S stand for? Crosses sutures. So the one whose initials are C S is the one that indeed crosses the sutures. So what about cephalohematoma? What are its initials? C or CH. Certainly not CS, so it does not cross sutures. And of course, the one that crosses the sutures is also the one that is symmetrical. So I always say CS stands for crosses sutures and caput symmetrical. And Leonid, on number eight... Uh, it's talked about the hyperbilirubinemia. Normal physiologic jaundice appears after 24 hours. So there's a, there's a reminder of the difference between physiologic jaundice and pathologic. Okay, the last page, OB meds. Top 10 group, you've got to know your OB meds. Now, good news. You don't have to know much about your OB meds because you're not expected to be an expert in OB meds, but you've got to know generally what they are and just a couple of things about them. So rather than fill you full of all kinds of stuff you don't need to know, let's focus on what you do need to know with these six different meds. The first two meds are tocolytics, which stop labor. They are terbutaline and mag sulfate. These are drugs you give to women who are threatening prematurity and you want to stop their labor. 
Terbutaline, the only thing you need to know about it is that it causes maternal tachycardia. It speeds mom's heart rate up. That's really all they'll test on that one. That it stops labor and speeds up the heart. Mag sulfate will also stop labor. If you give a person a lot of magnesium, what electrolyte imbalance will you create? Hypermagnesemia. And you know that magnesemias do the opposite. So a high magnesium makes everything go down, so the uterine contractions will go down. Well, the only problem is, so will everything else. So what will your heart rate do? Go down, write that down. What will your blood pressure do? Go down, write that down. What will your reflexes do? Go down, write that down. What will your respiratory rate do? Go down, write that down. And what will your LOC do? Go down, write that down. So, mag sulfate, yes, the good news is it stops the uterine contractions. The bad news is it brings everything else down too. Which of those two do you think are the top two that boards will, will check your knowledge on? Respiratory and reflexes. They'll want to know what does mag sulfate do to the respirations and what does mag sulfate do to the breathing. And it's, it lowers both of them. So, when you're giving mag sulfate to a patient, you must monitor what two things? Reflexes. Reflexes and respiration. What are your parameters for titrating the mag sulfate? And LPNs, what parameters would you use when you notify the RN about it? 12? So what do you mean 12? 12 Yes. So as long as the respirations are above 12, what do we know about the mag? Is it okay or not? It's okay. But if it goes below 12, <clears throat> what do we need to do with the mag? Slow it down. LPNs, you'd notify the RN of that. What about the reflexes? What do we want for reflexes? Two. We want plus two. So if it's plus one, what do we do to the mag? Slow it down. If it's plus three, what do we do to the mag? Speed it up. So what do we want? Twelve and two. We want at least twelve respirations and we want two reflexes. What we don't want to see is eleven and one. We don't want to see 11 respirations and lower, and we don't want to see one reflex and lower, plus one and lower. So 12 and 2 is good, 11 and 1 is bad. Okay, the next class of OB drugs are the opposite of the tocolytics. They are the oxytoxics. Now, the oxytoxics stimulate and strengthen labor. Remember, the tocolytics stopped it, these ones start it. The most famous is Pitocin. We've talked about it before. The big thing you need to know about Pitocin is it can cause uterine hyperstimulation. Which would be defined as what? Uterine hypercontraction is what? Longer than 90 seconds. Closer than every two minutes. If you see that, back off your pit. Remember that before from the last couple of pages? 
<clears throat> Longer than 90 seconds, closer than two minutes. The next drug that will cause your uterus to contract is methergine. And the only thing you need to know about methergine is it causes high blood pressure. Now, if it's going to contract blood vessels and contract the uterus, if it contracts blood vessels, what's it going to do to the blood pressure? Increase. Does it make sense that vasoconstriction increases blood pressure? So do you see the two M's, methergine and mag? They're both used in OB, methergine and mag, right? What does one do to the blood pressure? Lowers it. Well, the other one does what to the blood pressure? Raises it. So one of, it low, one of the M's lowers the BP. The other M increases the BPO. Okay, the next two meds are the fetal lung maturing meds. The meds to make a fetal's lungs mature faster. The first one is beta-methasone. What is it? Steroid. And the other is Cervanta, which is surfactant. So let me talk about three things you need to know about each. With beta-methasone, number one, it is given to the mother. Mom gets the beta-methasone. Number two, it is given IM. And number three, it is given before the baby is born. Before the baby is born. And you can repeat it as long as the baby is in utero. However, Cervanta, on the other hand, three things about it. Number one, it is given to the neonate, to the baby. Not to the mother, it's given to the baby. Number two, it is given transtracheal, which means blown in through the trachea. And number three, it is given after the baby is born, not before. Cervanta is given to the baby transtracheally after the baby is born. Whereas beta-methasone is given to the mother IM before the baby is born. They both are given to make the baby's lungs mature faster. Cervanta is blown in. They use a nebulizer kind of thing. They can even put it in a connection to a ventilator, pump it in. <clears throat> okay. That's it on OB. We're done with OB. That's the longest lecture of the whole review. <clears throat> That's why I like to split it up with lunch. Okay, we're going to go to page 51, Medication Helps and Hints. This is a very short lecture just designed to help you get some basic, basic, basic facts down. Because if you don't know these facts and you miss these questions, you're in a major hurt. The first one is, what is Humulin 70-30? What is it? It's a mix of insulins, of R and N. Now you can have Lispro 70-30, but, but that's a variation. When they say 70-30, they're talking about N and R, basically. 
Now, 70 and 30 are percentages. So it means it's 70% one and 30% the other. Which one is which? 70% is N and 30% is R. So if you give 100 units, which you would never do, it's way too much, but if you gave 100 units of 70, 30, how many units of N would there be? And how many units of R would there be? If you gave 50 units of 70, 30, how many units of N would there be? 35. How many of R would there be? 15. You see, it's just you just multiply the percentages. You know how to get a percentage? Just take that number and multiply it by 0.7 for 70, 0.3 for 30. The way I remember that N is the 70 is 70, 30 is like a fraction. What do you call the top term in a fraction? What letter does that begin with? N. So N is in the numerator. Number two, can you draw up, can you mix insulins in the same syringe? Yes or no? Yes. When you draw it up, is there a certain way to do it? Which one comes first? Everybody says clear to cloudy. Boards doesn't use the words clear or cloudy. They talk about N and they talk about R. Now, those of you that are taking the NCLEX RN, this, this will work better for you. But is that what you want to be? Then do it that way. RNs will do it this way, meaning draw up the what first? R followed by the N. That way you don't get into this clear cloudy garbage. Okay, RNs do it that way. <clears throat> now, if you're talking about pressurizing the vial, which vial would you inject the air into first? The N, then inject, excuse me. <laughs> then inject the air into the R, then draw up the R, then draw up the N. So it's N, R, R, N, but it always ends in R, N. <coughs> Injections. <clears throat> they will tell you what injection you're giving and they will ask you what needle you're going to use. What needle will you use for giving a particular, particular injection? Here's how you do that. If they say you're giving an IM injection and they want to know which needle you'll use. 21 gauge, 5 eighths inch. 22 gauge, 1 inch. 21 gauge, 1 inch. 25 gauge, 5 eighths inch. They want to know what, which one of those needles will you use for IM. The clue is in the abbreviation. Look at the first letter of the abbreviation. What number does that look like? A one. Go pick the answer in which both parts have a one in it. Which one would that be? C would be your answer. Do you see that? Why is C the answer? Because both the first, the gauge, and the length both have a number one because an I looks like a 
one. Okay, but what about this? What if they changed it to sub Q? <clears throat> Here again, look at the first letter in the abbreviation. What is the first letter in the abbreviation? S. What number does an S look like? A five. Go pick the answer that has a five in both of the parts. And the answer would be D. Because you've got 25 and 5 eighths. <clears throat> so when you're asked to pick a needle, just look at the abbreviation, look at the first letter, and go find the numbers. Okay, turn the page. We're going to talk about heparin and Coumadin because they're in the top three most commonly tested drugs on boards. If you don't know these, you're in trouble. Heparin versus Coumadin. Very, very important. Heparin. It is given IV or sub-Q. Coumadin is given only PO. See, I'm comparing and contrasting is what I'm doing, everybody. Go back to heparin. Heparin is working immediately. Works immediately. Go to Coumadin. Coumadin takes a few days to a week to work. Anywhere between a few days to a week. Go back to heparin. Heparin cannot be given for longer than three weeks. And in parenthesis put, except for Lovenox. Remember the Lovenox can be given for a long time. Regular heparin cannot be. Yes? Three. Because in 21 days you start making heparin antibodies, which could be really life-threatening. Coumadin can be given for the rest of your life. Can you not? You can take Coumadin forever. Go back to heparin. The antidote to heparin overdose is protamine sulfate. They love that kind of stuff. Coumadin. What's the antidote to Coumadin? Vitamin K. Vitamin K. How do you remember that? Yeah. K -k and p -p heparin, protamine, coumadin, K. Go back to heparin. The lab test that monitors heparin is the PTT. PTT, which is the partial thromboplastin time. They'll give you both names. The one that monitors the Coumadin is the PT, which is the INR, from which the INR is derived. Now, the way I remember that is several ways. If you have your hands, you can go what? H-E-P-A-R-E. I-N. How many fingers are left? Three. P-T-T. -T. Okay, let's spell Coumadin. C-O-U-M-A-D-I-N. How many fingers are left? Two. P-T. Or you can 
cross. You can write P, T, T, cross them together. What letter does that make? Which stands for? Heparin. Any of you guys computer people? Have you ever seen this? HTTP? Read it backwards. PTT is H, which is heparin. Okay. So you can do it either way, any way you want to do on that one. Heparin can be given to pregnant women. Coumadin cannot be given to pregnant women. Heparin can be given to pregnant women. Coumadin cannot be given to pregnant women. By the way, speaking of pregnant women, what's the only major antipsychotic tranquilizer that can be given to pregnant women? Remember all those zines and zapines? The only one that can be given is Haldol. Haldol is the only one you can give, antipsychotic can give to pregnant women. That's nothing to do with what we're talking about, but I just thought we'd throw it in. The next thing is the K-wasting and K-sparing diuretics. K-wasting and K-sparing diuretics. Probably the only question you'll ever get about a diuretic is does it waste K or does it spare K? The easiest way I know to do this is this. Any drug ending in X, any diuretic ending in the letter X, X's out K. So if it ends in X, it X's out K. So what is it? A waster or a sparer? If it ends in X, it X's out K. It wastes it, yes. Plus diuril. So the K wasters are all the diuretics that end in the letter X plus diuril. If it does not end in an X and it's not diuril, it's a sparer. So I'm going to give you a bunch of drugs and you tell me whether they're wasters or sparers. Spironolactone. Aldactazide. Moderatic. Moderatic. Sparing. Lasix. Bumex. Clotrix. Esadrex. Demodex. Diaryl. Wasting. And, uh, yeah, so you got it? And baclofen. Baclofen is the last drug I want to talk about. Boards test muscle relaxants as a class. And you need to know your muscle relaxants. Now, the only thing they test about muscle relaxants is the two side effects and the three teachers, teachings. Two side effects and three things to teach. The two side effects of a muscle relaxant are fatigue and muscle weakness. Does that make sense? That a muscle relaxant would make you tired and relax your muscles. Fatigue and muscle weakness. The three things you teach are don't drink, don't drive, and don't operate heavy machinery. So what do you have to know about baclofen? What are the side effects? Fatigue or, or drowsiness, right? Drowsiness, fatigue, same thing, right? And muscle 
weakness. What do you teach them? Don't drink, don't drive, don't operate heavy machinery. Now, the other drug that they test is Flexeril. F-E-L-F-L-E-X-E-R-I-L. That's, that's the other muscle relaxant they test. Flexeril and Baclofen are the two muscle relaxants they test. I am not going to teach you how to remember that Flexeril is a muscle relaxant because if you can't figure that one out, I can't help you. Right? So Flexeril, you should remember, say what? Because you flex your muscles. Well, how in the world are you going to remember that Baclofen is a muscle relaxant? Well, I always say this. When you are on your back low fan, you are on your back low fan. Which means you're doing what? <laughs> if you're loafing, what are you doing? Aren't you relaxing? So there's your clue. It's a muscle relaxant. Because baclofen puts you on your back loafing. It's a muscle relaxant. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The the semides. S-E-M-I-D-E. S-E-M-I-D-E are the X's. Semides are typically X's. Semides. M-S-E-M-I-D-E-S. Not all of them, but most of them. Okay, let's talk about pediatric teaching on the next page. (coughs) We've only got three left, guys. Actually, three and a half left, so we're cool. This takes about five, ten minutes, this one, because it's very short. It's just a review of Piaget's theory of cognitive development. Have you heard of that? You do need to know Piaget's theory, but they will never mention Piaget's name. They will test your knowledge of Piaget's theory of cognitive development by asking you how you would teach children. And you're supposed to, if you get a pediatric teaching question, that's a chance for you to show your knowledge of Piaget. So let's talk about it. (coughs) Piaget has four stages for kids' thinking. The first one is the zero to two-year-olds who are in the stage of sensory motor thinking. In the middle column, Piaget says these kids are totally present-oriented. They don't think about the past. They don't understand the future. They only think about what they are sensing or doing right now. So, when do you teach these kids? Can you teach them ahead of time? Why? Why not? They don't understand the future. Can you teach them after you do it? No, they can't understand the past. So when do you teach them? While you do it. So when? While you do it. You teach them as you do it. What do you teach them? What you are doing. Do you notice the present tense there? What you are doing? And how verbally? Just tell them. Don't use play. They don't understand play. So if you get a kid from zero to two years of age and he's going to have a spinal lumbar puncture and they want to know how you're going to teach him, what are you going to say? While we do it, we're going to tell him him what we are doing. Bingo. That's all you do. There really is no such thing as pre 
off or pre-test teaching for this age group. For this age group, who do you pre-teach? The parents, not the kid. Okay, the second stage of Piaget is the three to six-year-olds. He calls them the pre-operational, which I like because three to six is a preschooler, correct? And he calls it pre-operational. So the two pre's go together. Preschooler, pre-operational. They are fantasy-oriented. They are imaginative. They are illogical. Their thinking obeys no rules. You cannot reason with a preschooler. <laughs> if they can think it, it can happen. I mean, they just, they're just, you can't, they just, whatever. Well, do they understand the future? Yes. Do they understand the past? Yes. So when would you teach these kids? Would you teach them before? Yes. How long before? Or doesn't it matter how long? Shortly before. So here's the deal. Pick an answer that says the morning of or the day of. Or something like two hours before. That is fantastic preschool. Because you don't want to give these kids a whole lot of time to what? Get their imagination going on it. You see what I'm saying? My kids never, at this age, my kids never knew they were gone to the doctor's office until they pulled into the parking lot of the doctor's office. Otherwise, we'd have had disaster. <clears throat> That's why they never rode with me after that. No. Um, what do you teach them? What you are going to do. What you are going to do. What tense are we talking in now? Future. What did we talk, what tense did we talk in with the younger ones? Present. So now, so how old does a kid have to be before you can start using future tense verbs? Three. three, at least three. Good. How? Play. These are the kids that learn through play. So in a nutshell, if you've got a four-year-old who's going for a lumbar puncture, how do you teach him? When? The day of, you tell him what you're going to do using play. Some kind of a play thing. Alrighty? A story, a book, equipment, whatever. Dolls. Okay, the next stage are the 7 to 11 year old concrete operations kids. The way I remember that 7-11 age is concrete is, have you ever seen a 7-11 grocery store? What's it surrounded by? Any flowers? Grass? Trees? No, just a bunch of concrete 7-11s. So just think of concrete 7-Elevens. you got 7-Eleven age, concrete operations. These kids are rule-oriented. They live and die by the rules. They cannot abstract. With these kids, they are so rigid. If you tell them, this is the way it's going to be, that's the way it has to be. How many At 7-11, to 11, that age group, how many ways are there to do things? One and only one. And every other way is wrong. This is the age where the parent hears, the teacher said, and the teacher hears, my parents said. Now, have you ever taken care of these kids? This age group? Did you ever change a dressing for them or something like that? What do they always tell you when you change their dressing? You're doing it wrong. Which means what? You're not doing it like the other person did. Now, are you doing it wrong? No, but they don't know that. They're, they're so rigid. 
So, when do you teach them? Days ahead. Because they're not going to blow it out of proportion. If you tell them this is what's going to happen three days later, that's what they think is going to happen. So you can teach them a day or two ahead of time. So how old does a child need to be before you could teach them the day before? Seven. Now you can give a little one, a three or four year old, a tour of the facility. You just don't tell them what's going to happen there. Do you understand what I'm saying? Tours are okay. You can give anybody a tour. What are you going to teach them? What you're going to do plus skills. What you're going to do plus you can teach a 7 to 11 year old how to do skills. You cannot teach a 3 to 6 year old how to do skills. Why? <coughs> if you teach a 7 to 11 year old how to do a skill, how will they do it every time? Exactly the way you taught them because they're rigid concrete. If you teach a three to six year old how to do a skill, how will they do it? Any way they can imagine. You, know, I get, you teach a three or four, five year old how to give themselves insulin, they'll do it just fine for you. Then the next day, what will they do? Well, I think I'll not put anything in there and I'll just jab it out. And then the next day they go, oh, why don't I give it to the dog? That'll work. You know, and they just don't, they just, no. So what age does a child have to be before you can teach them a skill? Seven. Seven. How? Use age-appropriate reading and demonstration. Use age-appropriate reading and demonstration. Okay, the next age group are the 12 to 15-year-olds. And they are formal operations. These kids can abstract. That's the big, huge thing that they can do that the younger ones can't. They can abstract and they can think cause and effect. So here's the good news. As soon as a kid hits 12 and they ask you about teaching, it's not a pediatric question anymore. It's an adult med surge question. Because how do you, when do you teach a 12-year-old and above? Like an adult. What do you teach them? Like an adult. How do you teach them? Like an adult. So, at what age is a child first taught like an adult? Twelve. Trick question. When's the first age that a child would be able to manage their own care? Well, why can't a, can a seven-year-old do the skills related to their care? Could they manage it? No. What does manage mean? Make what? Decisions which require abstraction. Because if you tell, if, if you got a board question like this, which of the following four children could manage their own care? A seven-year-old with cystic fibrosis. No. An eight-year-old with diabetes mellitus? No. A ten-year-old with a scraped knee? No. A thirteen-year-old with chronic renal failure? Yes. Why did they put the ten-year-old with a scraped knee in there? To fool you, because it's not the severity of the illness that determines who can manage, but the age of the kid. 
Why could a 10-year-old not manage a scraped knee? What will you teach a 10-year-old to do about a scraped knee? You'll tell them to do what? Wash it. Dry it. Put on neosporin and a bandit. Okay, what will he do the next day? Wash, dry, neosporin, bandit. Because they do it exactly the way you said. So what do they do the third day? Wash, dry, neosporin, band-aid. The fourth day, it's swollen. What will they do? Wash, dry, neosporin, band-aid. The next day, there's pus coming out of it. What will they do? Wash, dry, neosporin, bandage. The next day, it's swollen twice the size of the other leg. What will they do? Wash, dry, neosporin, Band-Aid. The next day, they're semi-comatose and they've got red streaks coming up and down the leg. They can barely get out of bed. What will they do? Wash, dry. Are they managing? No. No. That's why they can't do it. But a 13-year-old with a chronic renal failure, if they are taught auscultate your shunt every day to hear a brewery, if they don't hear a brewery, what will they do? Get help. That's managing. Managing doesn't mean doing everything. Managing means knowing when you can and when you can and what's necessary. So just be careful. If they say manage, it's a 13-year-old. If they say skills, it's a 7-year-old. All right. Let's go to page 58. I want you to read this. This is for you to read about and learn about. I want It's about how to take psych tests. All it is is a bunch of seven principles you have to obey. The first principle says, make sure you know what phase of the relationship you're in. Remember the nurse-patient relationship? Pre-interaction, introduction or orientation, working and termination phase. Remember that? This tells you how to answer in each of those phases. The second principle is gift giving, which means don't give gifts in psych. Don't accept gifts in psych. If if your schizophrenic gives you flowers, don't accept them. Why? Because to you it's just flowers. To them it may be a marriage proposal. And when you accept it, you're in trouble, okay? Number three, don't give advice. If the patient says, what do you think I should do, what should you say? What do you think you should do? I know it sounds corny, but that's what they want you to say. Don't give them advice. Now, can you give advice in med surgeon peds? Sure, but not in psych. Because if a mother says to you, how should I care for my child's pick line when she goes into the shower? You should not say, how do you think you should care for the pick line when she goes? Do you know what I'm saying? It's stupid in med surge. It makes sense in psych. Number four, don't give guarantees in psych. Don't say, if you cry, you'll feel better. If you talk to me, we can help you. Remember, all those students, those are guarantees. Don't do that. On that next page, immediacy, and you can read all about this. I'm just showing you what it's about. Immediacy says, if a patient says something, what's the best answer? The one that keeps them talking. 
If you're between two psych answers and you don't know which one to pick, pick the one that keeps the patient talking. The one that says, let's talk about it right here and right now. Let's keep talking. Don't pick answers that say, refer them to the social, social worker. Why? If you're referring to the social worker, what are you doing to the communication right then and right there? Shutting it off. Don't do that. Even if it's appropriate for the social worker to deal with. Do you see what I'm saying? Keep them talking. It's never wrong to get your patient to talk. Did you hear what I said? It's never wrong to get your patient to talk. So if one of the answers gets that patient to talk, you better pick that. Because if you don't, you're saying it's wrong to get a patient to talk. It's never wrong to get a patient to talk. That rule alone can really help you on psych questions. If you're sitting there and you're between two answers, for example, like a woman has, has had a breast biopsy, and she says to you, when will, the, when will the results come back? Do you think I have cancer? My sister had cancer. She died of breast cancer. What's your best response? And you're between A, which says, your results will come back in two to three days and the doctor will discuss them with you. Or B, which says, you're concerned about what the results may show. Both of those are okay. But one of them doesn't get her to talk. The other one gets her to talk. Which one gets her to talk? B. Now, is there anything wrong with A? It's absolutely 100% correct. But it says, the results will come back in two to three days. The doctor will talk to you. Talk to the hand that cares. You know what I mean? Uh, talk to someone who cares because I don't care. Whereas, you're concerned about what the results may show gets her to talk. But you see, those are, that's a real dilemma that a lot of people get into. So when you're between two psych question answers, remember, it's never wrong to get the patient to. So it's probably always right. Okay, concreteness number six means don't use slang. You know, if the patient says, I feel rotten about what I did, don't say, you feel rotten? Because then they go, oh, maybe I have, you know, maybe I'm, you know, rotting away. And don't tell an upset patient to chill out. You'll probably find him in the refrigerator. <laughs> because psych patients take you what? Literal and concrete. So use, don't say to a, a client, oh, you know, what goes around comes around. <laughs> now they're going like this all day long, you know, because they're worried about something going around and coming around. That's figurative speech. That stinks in psych. If a patient says to you, you're a real brinslabic, what should you say? Um, what's brinslabic? Ah, I tricked you. Brinslabic is not what? Concrete. So you wouldn't say what's a brinslabic. You'd say, you're confused about what my role is here. I know it sounds really stupid, but that's what they're going to say. Or, or, you're a real brinslabic. I see you're angry. You see what I'm saying? That's perfect. You don't use the dumb word they used. You know what I mean? You're a Shabozniak. What's a Shabozniak? No, no, you don't go there. You, know, don't go, you don't believe me. You don't want to go there. Now, you may want to go there because sometimes it's really fun to hear about it. It can be very entertaining, but that's what makes me a bad psych nurse. Okay. Um, the one I want to camp out on is empathy here. 
You gotta know empathy. Because they won't license a nurse who's not empathetic. Believe me, they won't. Empathy says the best psych answers are those answers that communicate to the patient that the nurse accepts the patient's feelings, feelings as being valid, real, and worthy of action. Empathy is all about feeling. Do you remember we talked about this the other day? Acknowledge feeling. You're empathetic. Always be empathetic. Here are some really bad answers. If you ever see an answer written this way, don't even finish reading it. It isn't worth your time. Here's a really horrible one. Don't worry. Don't feel. You shouldn't feel. I would feel. Anybody would feel. Nobody would feel. Most people feel. All of those are as stupid as stupid gets. I saw a question in a review book that shall remain nameless called Saunders that (laughs) said that a woman had a miscarriage and was crying and they wanted to know what the nurse should say and they said that you should say I know how you feel I had a miscarriage too now it's true you did have a miscarriage you know what I'm saying it's not that you're lying but they said you should say that I'm telling you you never say that that is the stupidest answer I've ever heard you say something like what tell me how you feel well remember I don't like tell me how you feel that's very upsetting yeah that is so sad everything that has happened is so devastating you see I don't, we don't like to say how are you feeling we want you to Look at the scenario and assume... Remember, you're always told, don't read into questions. But on these ones, you have to read the feeling into what's going on. This is the one place where you have to read into the question. If you don't read in, you're going to miss it. Because see, if you're, she's crying, you say, how do you feel? That's kind of... Well, how do you think I feel? <laughs> you know what I mean? But I see you're so sad. Everything is just... This is just devastating. You know, that's... Good. You don't say, I know how you feel. I did it too. You know, who cares? Who cares? Okay, turn the page. I want to teach you a four-step process for answering empathy questions. And if you use this, you will do really well with them. Number one, recognize that it's an empathy question. Empathy questions always have a quote in the question, and each of the answers is a quote. Have you seen that format? Patient says, quote, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, what would you say? A quote, B quote, C quote, D quote. When you see that format, what should you say to yourself every single time? Chance for me to show my empathy. Okay, now here's how you do it. Because you're going to have to read. Aren't you going to have to read the feeling into it? Number two, put yourself in the client's place, their shoes, and say their words as though you really, 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 really meant them. Be an actor. Get into it. Role play it. Number three, then ask yourself, if I said those words and really meant them, how would I be feeling right now? Okay, now you got your answer. Now you got your answer. All you have to do now is, number four, go and choose the answer that reflects that feeling or anything close. Do not choose the answer that reflects their words. Because these empathy questions always have what I call the sucker answer there. 
It's an answer that's wrong, but it's there to sucker you into answering it. And what it will reflect is what the patient said. But it will ignore what the patient felt. You're supposed to pick the answer that reflects what they felt and ignore what they said. Did you hear that? Empathy ignores what is said and goes with what is felt. Don't get it switched around. When people have a hard time answering empathy questions, it's usually because they respond directly to what the patient said rather than how the patient feels. Do you remember when, um, I don't know your name, but I said, you're a real Brinch Slavic? If you respond to what they said, you'll say, a Brinch Slavic? But if you respond to how they feel, you'll say, I see you're angry. Do you see the difference? Now, I want you to do the next three questions, practice questions, and I want you to use these rules. Put yourself in the client's place. Say the words as though you really meant them. Ask yourself, how would I be feeling if I said these words? Pick the answer that reflects that feeling. I also want you to identify at least one sucker answer that overemphasizes what the patient said but missed how the patient was feeling. So do that and then talk to your buddy. The third one is really hard. That third one, the problem with it is when you put yourself in the patient's shoes, 
and say those words, no feeling really pops out. So what you have to do is go to the answers and see what feeling the answers are reflecting and see which one has the best, the most likely feeling. So go to your answers and see if you can get it that way. Well, let me ask you about the first one. She said, you're killers, you all killed my mother, whatever, you know, you, she died before I was born. How does she feel? If you said those words and believed them, how would you feel? Scared? Okay, now, go to the answers and find the answer that reflects being scared. Which one is it? B. B. What is the sucker answer? C. Because that focused on what she said. She isn't concerned about her mother. She's scared. She's frightened. So the answer is B. The sucker answer is C. The next one. What's the right answer? D. And a sucker answer is any of the others. Because the others focused on what he said. D focused on how he feels. Did anybody get an answer on the third one? What did you say? The answer is C. What's the sucker answer? B. Because B says religious. He's not feeling religious. He's using a bunch of religious what? Words. That's the hint that it's the wrong answer. He's feeling out of control. So that's why C is the answer. Because with those words, I can prove to you that he has a control issue. I can't prove to you that he feels religious. So C is the right answer. How many got C on that one? Wow, that's great. How many got all three? Terrific. If you missed any, do you see why you missed it? What were some of the problems you had with that? Anybody? Or you, you've learned from it. Any questions you have to me about those? Did you use the process? Did the process help? Okay, so that's what I want you to start doing. I don't want you guessing on psych answers. I want you to know the answer. You understand what I'm saying? So many times you guys just guess on psych answers. I want you to know why you're picking what you're picking. Okay. Take a quick break. Come back at 25 after. And we'll just do the last lecture and a wrap-up and be done. Okay? And the sooner you're back, the sooner we'll get done.